Welcome to season three of Outstanding Women Leaders, Witty and Wise Conversations. I'm your host, Katie Alice, leadership and relationship coach by day, comedian and writer by night. I'm on a mission to host 100 million witty and wise conversations that disrupt the way leaders think and the way the world lives in relationship to each other. It's time to start connecting our left and right brain to our loving hearts and begin listening to what they have to say. The brain will want to continue on the path previously followed and feel safe there. The heart sometimes barely has a path, allowing passion and purpose to dictate the way. Get ready to disrupt business as usual in your brain and get ready to start following your heart. Listen, it's calling for you. My heart is always calling for me to dance in conversation, to feel the rhythm and vibrations, the ebbs and flows as we exchange energies, wit, and wisdom. My brain is interjecting really quick to invite you to check out allprofessionalcoaching.com backslash podcasts for more episodes and to head over to Apple Podcasts or Podbean and write us a quick review. You can also find me on the gram or Facebook at Owl Professional Coaching or Outstanding Women Leaders. Enough about me. Today, we have four rules to guide our conversation. These rules are inspired by the Coactive Training Institute to create space for powerful connection and authenticity. Rule number one, nobody gets to be wrong. Rule number two, nobody gets to be right. Rule number three, everybody gets to be vulnerable. And my favorite, rule number four, everything is included. So if your cell phone rings, it's included in the podcast. We do not edit here. The conversation is exactly what it needs to be in this moment in time. We've asked our guests to join us via video to allow us to create authentic connection. Eyes are the window to the soul. You will be seen here. You will be heard. There is space for you. When this conversation comes to a close, I will ask our guests three questions. If you've tuned in before, you know what they are. If you haven't, you don't want to miss them. Now it's really enough about me. Today's guest is Michelle Dickinson. She is a passionate mental health advocate, a TED speaker, and a published author of a memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. After years of playing the role of child caregiver, Michelle embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. Her memoir offers a rare glimpse into a young girl's experience living with and loving her bipolar mother. Michelle spent years working to eradicate the mental health stigma within her own workplace by elevating compassion, causing more open conversations, and leading real change in how mental illness is understood in the workplace. Michelle also knows firsthand what it feels like to struggle with a mental illness after experiencing her own depression due to challenging life events her own just a few years ago. Michelle recently concluded her 19-year pharmaceutical career and became an entrepreneur. She has emerged from her cha own challenging life events with a strong desire to positively impact the mental health landscape within the first responder community, the workplace, and within local communities. We're so excited to have Michelle here. I had the opportunity to be on her uh, podcast, Michelle's Conversations That Matter. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I'm thrilled to be here. So mental health has been something I have been very um, passionate about as well. I've had my own mental breakdown. I've had my own bouts of depression, December, 2019, I was on Lexapro, but you've been living mental health your entire life. Um, tell us your story. Cause it's so powerful. Yeah. Thank you. And you know, I love it. I love that you're so open and vulnerable about this topic. I think that when we go first and we create a space for other people to just be human beings, right? So I, I applaud you for that. 
So, yeah, I mean, I grew up with a mother. She had bipolar disorder from my very young years. I remember it. I remember it well with her rapid cycling of mania to depression. And I took on the role of care of caregiver for her. It was almost like a parent child role reversal where I was looking after her, making sure she had what she needed. And in those moments when she was like just too vulnerable to be left at home alone, my dad would ask me to stay home from school and, and just sit with her. So it was really hard, you know, and it taught me empathy and it taught me compassion and it taught me, um, you know, what mental health looks like from, you know, a handcuffed little girl not being able to do anything, but just to be with her, you know, so, so yeah, so that, you know, I experienced that throughout my entire life until she passed away, even my adult years. Um, so yeah, so that was basically, you know, my reality was this is life with a parent with a mental illness and, and I didn't know any different. And that was, and that was just sort of how I was raised. Mm. I, it's, you know, children, we always pick up on what our parents are feeling, whether or not we think we do. I remember my childhood being very much wanting to, I was an entertainer. I want to make sure people are laughing or people are happy. Um, And that, that depression that exists um, wasn't constant. It definitely wasn't a bipolar ups and downs mania. I was well taken care of, but the, the energy that I, my energy changed in response to that. When you are in the workforce and thinking about that experience, what's, what's that like for people when that energy shift changes just as a result of how people are feeling? Uh, do you mean like a, a colleague or a direct report like that? Yeah. Anyone. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's very interesting. We've, we've gotten away from, I think the human aspect of being, um, being in the workplace, it's become a lot about, you know, focusing on the deliverables and, and sort of putting your personal life and checking yourself at the door and pretending that you're okay when you're not okay. Um, and I think it's, it's really easy for leaders who are not emotionally intelligent to just write off someone as a bad performer and not really understand what's going on with them and be curious about what, what could be going on. You know, life events happen to us all the time. So it's not easy. I think, um, you know, I experienced it myself in my own environment where I was working and helping to actually cause change and, and in compassionate work. You know, I had a, a leader who had her own uh, perceptions of mental illness and we all have our own biases, right? So, but those biases get in the way when they, um, when they're not able to relate to people or they, uh, don't know how to handle someone being honest about what they're dealing with. So, you know, like I was diagnosed with depression and I was having a hard time, you know, and this just happened a few years ago. This wasn't like throughout my life. I was adopted. So I was like, I was thrilled that I didn't have my mother's bipolar, you know, it directly, but it definitely did influence who I became with seasonal depression and such. And I just remember telling her that, you know, I was diagnosed with depression. I'm going to go first. I'm going to tell, I'm going to be like, Hey, listen, this is my story. And it's not easy. And, um, just like the lack of compassion that I was met with, uh, could be because of her own experiences or her own beliefs. Um, you know, and then later that year, I got the performance review that I will never forget when she said to me, you know, Oh, you just didn't bring your bubbly upbeat self to work every day. And like that lit the fire within my belly that like how many other people 
how many other people are living with something, just trying to do their job to the, to the best of their ability and try to navigate um, pretending that they're okay when they're really not. Um, or even have the courage like me to be like, I'm just going to tell my boss and like pray for the best. Only be met with that level of, of you know, no compassion. So it's hard. And, and I think we have, there's some education that has to be done, right? There's the human side has to return to, to um, humanity, you know, like we're people before we're employees, you know, people, I don't know. I think people do better when they feel cared for and understood and nurtured. Mm. So when you would, do you recommend compassion? Like, what do you recommend to, in addition to compassion, of course, to support employees? And also, what do you recommend the employee do to help them get the support that they need? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a, oh, it's such a multi-pronged question. I think, you know, you can't just expect cultures to shift overnight. Like in the, in the corporate setting, it takes something like what, seven, eight years to shift a culture. But, you know, there are things, distinct things that can, that can be done in the workplace to cultivate an environment that is ready for um, embracing people of all abilities, right? You, you can have a leader, a senior leader within the company. He or she has immense power just by talking about their own connection to mental health you know, and normalizing the conversation sets the entire tone for the organization. Um, people leaders should, should definitely be aware of the critical aspect of building trust long before it's needed. Uh, building a trusting rapport with your leader takes work and is something that should be invested in by both the employee and the, and the leader because you know, life events are going to happen. Things are going to happen. But if you have a trusting rapport that you've nurtured and you've built with your boss, you know, it's, it's not going to be a problem for you to be like, Hey, I'm struggling. I'm having a, I'm having a few hard days. I lost a loved one, blah, blah, blah. Um, but if there's no trust there, you can't expect employees to go first. Employees will never go first. They will never feel like they have the ability to be heard and to un be understood. So it's two-pronged, it's employee and, and leader building a trusting rapport. It's leaders within the top of the organizations creating a culture by going first and then having other activities that, that really amplify their story. Mm. Um, I'm so curious on the, you know, the like I'm an employee, I'm like, okay, I just got diagnosed with depression. I'm, I'm getting this Lexapro, I, my mom's dead. Like, how do I advocate for, what do I do? How do I get into conversation with my boss? What if I don't trust them? How do, how do I foster that? You know, I think one of the, I have, I have an amazing story. I actually, you know, we often think that there's nothing we can do as employees, but like, yeah, there's a woman I, I interviewed and spoke to, her name is Stephanie and she works at a company out in California. And she, um, she had been cultivating a trusting rapport within her own team. She had, she had a group of people that were reporting to her. And she was like, I want the same level of trust that we have within our team amongst employees that are, all have something in common. And that's they've either navigated a mental illness or they have a family member that's dealing with depression and, or mental illness. And they want to know how to better support them. So it's amazing how powerful grassroots efforts are. If you are an employee, you can literally start a little community of mental health employee resource, you know, 
like create a mental health employee resource group, but can create a little, a little um, pod of people who just can relate to one another. I think your, your dogs agree with that. I know. know. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's liable to happen. I have to be sorry. Everything is included. (laughs) (laughs) So, So no. So just to finish my thought, sorry. Um, employee resource groups are really powerful and anyone can do it. And so, you know, I know it takes a lot of energy, but it really doesn't. It's just having people that are like, um, that have like experiences coming together to support one another. Uh, I know the power of affinity groups, um, for diversity and inclusion work has, has been really helping to change community, um, company cultures. So I hear that. And when I think of inclusion in the workplace, and that's really a space that I love to help support, you know, mental health is one of those and affinity groups can make a huge difference. It's a very, and like you said, a very easy way to help out. Um, I also think about employees and, you know, recognizing that maybe your mental health and is more important than the job that you have. Um, how do you facilitate that conversation to let your boss know or to, to let yourself know, or just to even take a step back? Like, what do you do to help people that are in that, you know, when you're in that depression and fog, you can't see the answer. Um, you're the victim in that sense where you can't a victim of your own mind. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's so important to have a good clinical therapist. In my opinion, I think, you know, the stresses of work will be there, whether or not you're in your seat, you know, the work will be there, whether or not you're in your seat. And, and so it's, it's up to you to really talk to your doctor about the impact that work is having on your healing journey. Right. I mean, we all need some type of income. I get that. But if it's at the expense that your mental well-being is suffering even more, you really have to take a step back and say, is this, is, does this company, is this the place I want to call home? Is this the culture that I want to be a part of? Is this the organization um, that I want to be included with or not? You know, I mean, it's interesting I think employees interview companies as much as companies interview employees. I mean, the the workplace of the future is going to be one such that an employee knows if they're going to be able to get the support that they need collectively for their well-being, right? That's going to be a desirable workplace. Mm -hmm. The company cares about mental well-being and these are the things they do. That's a place that I want to call home. So I think, you know, big picture start being, start scrutinizing and saying, is this the place that I want to call? Is this where I want to plant my flag and say, this is my home? Yeah. Or do you want another more, you know, compassionate environment to be a part of? It makes me think of the coaching I do with people around relationship and leadership, because, um, you know, if we approach dating and interviewing the same way, (laughs) which is not that you want to convince the person on the other side of the table to hire you or to date you, but more of you wanting to take a look at, um, the synergy there, is this a good fit for me? And, and oftentimes we don't have the ability to do that. You know, we're in a pandemic right now, many people interviewing, maybe just hoping for that job. Um, so the, the future for you, you think is companies that are really supporting this conversation around mental health. And I will say elder millennial here, um, we millennials talk about how mental health, everybody is okay with having a therapist. Um, I'm an elder millennial. So for me, I was kind of on the opposite end of that for a while. 
Um, but you've mentioned before this, that depression and anxiety is starting to creep up, not only for one out of three people now, but getting closer to two out of every three people experiencing this anxiety and depression. Um, what's, I'm always curious, like what's the role of the workforce in this? Because as a teacher, by the way, it was my job to, you know, to hold this space and also teach them the things and all the stuff. Like what is the real role of the workforce? Is it to make and help support a less anxious, depressed place or, or is it just to find employees that are able to support themselves? I, I always wonder that, you know, now is the time. I just had a very powerful conversation with Paul Gianfrido, who's the president and CEO of Mental Health America. And he was the one that actually gave me that statistic that said, you know, one in two Americans are either dealing with depression or anxiety. Last year during, you know, 2020, it was one in three and it just keeps growing. It it depends as an employer, how you want to show up for your people, right? You have a golden opportunity right now to breed loyalty. You have a golden opportunity to retain talent and care for your people. Um, We all know your greatest asset in an organization is your people. So what, how do you want to show up and differentiate yourself from your competition around your, your employees? If you know that one, one and two have something that they're navigating and they're working from home and they're trying to be the, the teacher and the parent and the spouse, like, what are you doing to really support them so they can show up to the best of their ability and perform for you? It's, it's, it's like, you know, mutually beneficial to do good by your people in so many, for so many reasons. Absolutely. I, I love that we're shifting to start holding companies responsible in that sense, the way that we've shifted that burden onto teachers uh, for so many years. And then that burden keeps growing. Um, what do you do when your boss is the one with anxiety and depression? Yeah. You know, and people like that, you, it's relatedness, right? It's creating a safe space for, for you to be a human being. I think like, I think about like business trips I went on, you know, with senior level people and they, how they let their guard down and they're vulnerable. And they're actually like, you get to see a sneak peek into like who they really are instead of the facade they portray, you know, in the workplace. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think we need to kind of get to the place where we're dropping the facade, where we're just being ourselves. Like, wow, imagine an environment where you had authenticity, you had people being able to feel vulnerable without, you know, the ego getting in the way. I mean, obviously you don't want to work for someone who's abusive. So you want to remove yourself if that's happening, but it's, it's like, how about more compassion and empathy? I think if I had a boss who had a mental illness, I would want to know how they're doing. I'd want to check on them. I'd want them to know that they were supported and cared for. They might not be getting anyone asking them at home how they're doing, you know? I mean, Yeah, it makes me think about, we spend so much time talking about how bosses need to support employees, but sometimes the employees, and that can be hard when you're that employee that's like, listen, I've got all this shit going on too. I need my boss to not have this. Like those are, and so that bringing the whole self, that balance that we, you've, you talk about in so many of your conversations, how do we start that? How do we make that shift? Well, you just said something very interesting. I need my boss to not have that. And So that really resonates with me because we all have stuff. We all have some type of like, you know, we need to stop relating to mental health as mentally well or mentally sick. I I, I say this all the time. That's what people do when it comes to mental 
mental health or mental well-being is they say you're either you're either fine or you're sick and it's not the case it's a it's a continuum we're going we're gliding up and down the continuum with whatever life is throwing at us and you know some days are good and some days are bad and some sometimes you're you need to be you know treated with a medication and sometimes you don't um but to expect that people not have something I think is a fundamental thing we have to get away from. Yeah. And when you say like the sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, I think of like the ego and and how the ego sometimes the ego shows up and sometimes the ego doesn't. How I work I'm passionate about is helping people step into that whole person um to let go of that ego. It's the work that is continuously ongoing for myself. Mm-hmm. Um so I think about teams I've worked on and uh, for me, I think of just naming it. Like somebody's got to be the, the person in the room that says, you know, we are really making things harder for each other mentally, <laughs> which can make it hard for people to show up and actually do the work. Yeah. Um, what percentage of time should companies be devoting to this? Like, what does this look like in a, an eight hour work day or a 40 hour work week, uh, where we are building organizations that are truly supporting um, the mental health needs of their employees. Yeah, I, I think, you know, first of all, I think employees need to know what is available to them. And when I say what's available to them, like what they could be doing to, to care for themselves. I mean, I think an employer that's going to stand out is the one that, that doesn't just hand their employee an 800 number and walk away. It's an employer that holds their employee's hand and says much more than that and says, Okay, so yes, we have a crisis line, but what else? What else do you need, and what else can we provide you with? Right? It could be flexible accommodations. It could be um, understanding understanding uh, what they're dealing with. Like, you know, I had a friend I used to work with who was autistic, and um, the overstimulation of being forced to sit in a cube environment was not going to work for her. So it's about those accommodations that you know, now we're in a virtual world, but like at that point, like to force her to sit in a cube farm and she's autistic and knowing that you're not going to get the best out of her, like, why would you do that? So it's really meeting employees where they are with what they need. It's, it's not necessarily, you know, carving out a specific time to talk about mental health. It's, it's treating an employee as the whole person when you sit down with them and you have a one-on-one with them. Like, how are you doing? How is, how, you know, what are, what's going on for you? You know, what do you, what do you need support with? And not like diminishing them for their contribution because they're struggling with something, but really like understanding that if you extend some support to them, that they, that you could actually get the best performance out of them because you're giving them a little bit for themselves to be able to, to take care of themselves so that they can show up. Um, but it takes a special leader to be in tune. It takes a special leader to become imp- aware of their unconscious biases around mental illness and you know what, how they perceive someone with a mental illness, right? So people have to do the self-discovery work. That, that's what there is. Mm, and that's where I think coaching is so powerful. And 
uh, and that's how I like to support. And I keep hearing more about inclusion. There's a lot of things that need to be included at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often we look at that lens through diversity and that absolutely has to happen. Mm-hmm. We know that we get more in, in companies when we're a diverse talent, but also that diversity and inclusion includes the whole person. It includes the people with autism, people with depression, anxiety, um, my unconscious bias, I'm unconscious of it, I guess. So it's not an unconscious bias, but I really, I see, uh, where people are with this anxiety and the depression, and I can see the future without it because I've lived in it Mm -hmm. and I'm in a future without it. And so I'm always passionate about, um, people say the word balance. I think perception, (laughs) you know, I think of bosses who, um, or leaders rather that, and that are able to get people to really imagine that future without that anxiety and without that depression and really helping them to, to take back that control that they've lost mentally. That's really what it is in the, the overwhelm when there isn't a balance of being and doing, um, the company has a responsibility and an ownership to say, you know, we've created anxious environments. We've created environments that can lead to depression. So we need to create an environment that allows you to come out of that anxiety and depression. How do you use coaching and all the things that you do to support that work? So I love what you just said about um, that companies take some responsibility about the, the stress and the anxiety that they could cause their people, you know, it, I get it. It's the nature of business in general, but equipping them with tools and, and resources beyond, you know, a yoga class and a meditation class, like beyond that, I'm talking like maybe coaching or something that's so important. And, you know, the other piece, um, that I think companies forget is that their people are their greatest asset and their people that have navigated something and come out the other side are beacons of hope within their own population. So why not generate or create a safe peer community for other employees to see what's possible on the other side of what they're dealing with? Um, that's powerful. That's powerful. If I'm an employee sitting next to someone who's navigated, you know, um, bipolar or depression or some type of severe mental illness and they've they've navigated it they've gotten the help and they're they're thriving now like that's someone I would want to talk to like how'd you do it like how'd you do it and how are you doing it day to day and and like create that space for people to see what's possible the hope that exists within their own within their own peers Mm. yeah I'm just imagining that future. Sorry, I was in that space right there where people were, were supporting each other. Um, so you support people in this work. Tell us a little bit about how you're doing it and how people can find you because I know that um, you've got some things coming up where people can reach out. Yes, absolutely. So my ideal um, client and the clients I've been working with are all uh, HR leaders and and business owners because they realize they want to be doing more for their people, especially now during the pandemic and the statistic we cited earlier. Um, That, that is, those are the companies I want to work with. The ones that realize, Hey, now's the time we need to be doing more. I'm worried about my staff. So I typically sit down with them and really look at what they're already doing. Excuse me. 
like, what are they already doing to support their people? Do they have an 800 number? Do they have any, any AP 800 number? Is it underutilized? Are they doing any, any other type of check-in? The reality is if the bosses are checking in, they're asking them if they're okay, they're saying okay, and then they're going on about their business. But a lot of employees are struggling. So I like to sit down and say, well, let's do an assessment. Let's do an anonymous poll of how your people are doing. And let's just give them some practical tools. And that's where my resilience program comes in. And I really do sit down and I, I, I reflect back to them what they said in the, in the assessment so they can get they're not alone, right? That their own department is struggling. And then I just give them practical tools, things that your mom probably taught you when you were little that you forget. Things you can put, you can do to just put yourself back in the cockpit of, of your routine and of your life, especially now. So I'll do the resilience program. I'll assess their environment. But then after that, we look at the, what, they're, what they're doing in terms of shifting their culture. What does a compassionate culture look like? And what are simple things they can be doing to cultivate an open, normal, stigma-free conversation about brain health? Um, and they're really quite simple, but they do take effort. Um, and like I said earlier in the example, it also, it also means some of your leaders going first to cultivate that and say, hey, it's okay not to be okay. We are living through a pandemic and give yourself grace. Mm, I love um, I love all the things you're doing to support HR leaders. I also love that you support normal people like me that just want to pop in and have coffee with you. So yes. on Friday mornings, yes, you have an Friday. open invitation to grab mm -hmm. a cup of joe and bring your coffee with you um, and pop into a conversation with you. And I'll have that link in, in this podcast for people that just want to connect with Michelle and learn more. Um, do you want to leave us with a little tool or tidbit that we can use if our things are feeling a bit chaotic. Yeah, start your day off right. I, I just had this conversation with a woman and she and it was like the light bulb went off in her head and she was like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna do this. So it's been said that when you go to sleep and you're the neuroscience expert, you can validate this. When you go to sleep, the momentum of thought stops. For the most part, it slows down. And when you wake up in the morning, it's like you have a clear slate. But the first 17 seconds of your day, the first 17 seconds, after you open your eyes are critical. What you choose to do with those 17 seconds is really important. It can set your day off in a positive direction or a negative. So what not to do with the first 17 seconds, look at the news. What not to do, scroll Instagram or Facebook. What to do, just pause for a minute and count three blessings that you have and, and, and jot them down. I have an app called the five minute journal where I, I log three gratitudes. So I am starting my day off with three things I'm grateful for. It can only go in a much more positive direction than if I consumed media or social media. Mm, I love that. I, I have my clients that's adopted from some, some of Tim Ferriss's work, that five minute journal. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I start, I think of that. I start my morning off actually smiling at my partner that I've Shawshanked my way through some shit to lay next to every morning. <laughs> Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. The first 17 seconds of my day are usually, um, just being, we love our bed. Our bed vibrates us to sleep every night. And so, like we wake up and we're just so grateful. It's comfy and he's great. And he waited 44 years for me. Um, so my gratitude, when I do my daily practice, I find that Dan shows up on there a lot. And so does my bed and coffee. Um, <laughs> I love that. Great practice. Great tips. Um, where are all the places that people can find and connect with you? 
Yeah. So um, it's probably easy just to go to uh, my website, which is michelleedickinson.com. All my links are there to LinkedIn, to Instagram, to Facebook, to Twitter. You can follow me on, on all of all of those platforms, um, but just go to my page. That's the easiest way to access me. Love that. I have three questions before you go today. Okay. My first question, what's your superpower? Compassion and empathy. Mm. Definitely. With that superpower, my next question is what's your purpose? How do you want to use it? And suffering. Mm. My last question is what's next? Change the world. <laughs> I love it. I love how concise you are. This is my superpower. This is what I will do with it. And the world will be changed. I love that. Any way I can help support that work that you do, I want to change that same world, ending suffering, um, ending anxiety and depression because so that we don't have to suffer. I'm so passionate about. I'm going to leave you with the last word today. Anything you want to say? I think... The one thing we all can do to prevent suicide, suicide is the ultimate unaddressed depression, is we can check in on one another and not assume that everyone's okay, even the strong ones, making sure that you're reaching out and you're saying, how are you doing? I'm here for you. So they know they're not alone. Thank you so much, Michelle. You're welcome.